0: I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us and often still has us in its thrall. My guest is the actor, comedian, and writer, Ben Miller who's best known for leading roles in Death in Paradise, Bridgerton, Professor T and the Johnny English movies. He's published four books so far for children and books on physics. And of course, he's half of the hugely successful comedy duo Armstrong and Miller. Ben Miller, thank you so much for taking time for Twice Upon a Time. Um, Which book have you chosen from your childhood?
1: So I've chosen King Arthur and His Knights of the Round Table by Roger Lancelin Green. So this is a book that means an awful lot to me because it was, well, it was read to me. It's one I can I can really clearly remember my father reading to me when I was about, um, I guess it would have been nine or ten. You yeah, know, quite so little. Eight or nine, quite little. And he was very keen that I should hear the stories. My dad was an English lecturer at uh, what was then Birmingham Poly and my mum was an English teacher too. So it was all quite, um, it was quite booky. <laughs> <laughs> at home, yeah. and um, I'm just sort of more and more intrigued. Really, uh, you know, it's funny rereading it because you know I knew we'd be talking about it today, so I sort of took great pleasure actually over the last week or so in rereading it. It's not at all as I remember it <laughs> from from when he read it. I remember him being so keen for me to hear these stories and getting from him the feeling that they were important in some way. It's the story that everybody knows, you know, the story of sort of King Arthur, you know, the sword in the stone, Merlin, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. It's a, quite an old-fashioned book. And um, in fact, that was one of the surprises when I reread it. it, was just just quite how old-fashioned it was.
0: Where were you when he was reading to you?
1: This was actually when we lived in a little village just outside Natwich called Williston. So I would be in my bed, tucked up in my bed. Uh, I've got two younger sisters, so they'd have been fast asleep. And I remember... You know, this would be the the story that got read to me just before I went to sleep.
0: And would he have read other things to you or did he kind of select this one specifically?
1: I remember him selecting this one specifically. This is the one I can most clearly remember him reading. But, you know, he did read lots of other stuff as well. I mean, as I remember, it was all there was quite a bit by Roger Lancelin Green. So there was also um, Robin Hood, I think we had. We had various kind of Hungarian folk tales. I remember at, at various yeah, yeah, stages. Yeah,
0: I think he did North too. Didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: It's been tremendously influential on me, actually, because it was. Yes, it was lots of mythology, lots of sort of ancient, <laughs> ancient <laughs> myths. I'm not sure quite what he was thinking, but uh, actually, for kids, they're great things to hear. You know, there's a story in this book that fantastic sort of prose poem, Gawain in the Green Knight. Which, funnily enough, I think comes from Cheshire or or roundabout, and that's the story. Gawain in the Green Knights is the story I really, clearly, rem- most clearly remember. Apart from the obvious shock at the story in King Arthur about Lancelot and Guinevere, and I mean it's quite it's just baffling, really, isn't it? <laughs> I think
0: we'll come on to the role of the women we'll in, a, in a moment. We'll, we'll come on is, to this. Come on to this in a
1: moment. There is um, much yes. to unpack, Janet. There is
0: much to unpack. There is.
1: I suppose, yes, it's worth setting the scene, isn't it? So we're coming just after Roman Britain. The British Isles have been invaded by the Saxons. And when I say British Isles, I mean, it's Britain and France, isn't it? I mean, it's very much a sort of a myth of the Britons, as in the sort of Brittany and the British Isles. Um, The two are very connected at this time, aren't they? So Arthur sort of, yes, pulls the sword from the stone at this very mysterious castle in Wales and then is given Excalibur by the Lady of the Lake and is then made king, while a very young man then, uh, Merlin then makes this round table and they have the knights and they clear the Saxons out of what they call, am I saying this right? Logres? Logres? Logre?
0: I remember that feeling as a child of reading a book and not knowing what all the words meant. Mm. and not necessarily rushing off to look up what the words meant. And some of the language is quite extraordinary. Some of the names are extraordinary. And I'm probably never going to pronounce them right. And also, I have to say, they've they've kind of fallen out of favour, haven't they? One of the women is called... Drain, and I know not many ch- children christen that now. There's lots and lots, and there's King Pant, which I don't remember, but obviously now I laugh at, but I don't remember finding any of this funny. It was to me when I read it as a child it was very serious. Yeah. And very proper. Yeah, yeah,
1: very serious. Very, very proper. I think that's deliberate on his part, isn't it? Roger Green's mm-hmm. part or Roger Lancelin's part, I'm not sure. <laughs> or Roger Lancelin Green's part. I think it's Green's Rog, Roger's part. He's <laughs> trying to. He wants it to have. He doesn't want to update the language. It's very biblical uh, in, in places, isn't it? You know, as a totally, sort of yeah. Old Testament. You know, people smiting one another and and things doth happen. He gives you a sort of brief introduction at the beginning, which, of course, you know, my father did not read to me, where he says where he got get. You know, what the various sources are, and in some cases, you then go and read the Mort Dartha, It is pretty. It's pretty identical, really. There's not a lot of he hasn't done a lot um, to update it, and I think that's deliberate. I think it's he he wants it to sound super old-fashioned, which is not something we do now, is it? You would never write the story of King Arthur like this now.
0: Well, there's a lot to do with the way that children's literature has changed, and obviously you you write for children too. So, do you think it's something to do with the way we? Were as children then, you know, my, my child was in, in the 50s and 60s. Did we listen harder? Were we less afraid of having long in stories? Because there's quite a bit in there. Although there's quite a lot of events, there are also more lyrical passages, aren't there, where, where you're just waiting to see who's going to be beheaded next.
1: There's a few things you'd never include now in children's books now. I don't think you'd ever write... I and mean, this book, I suppose it's important to say that, isn't it? This book was written for children. Absolutely, um, yeah. You would never use this sort of language now. I mean, there's no way as a child I could have been understanding the language in this. It sort of just washed over you and you got the gist, I think. It's tremendously adult, the themes in it as well, as well as Lancelot and, and Guinevere, which I don't know how my dad glossed over all of that because few details are spared by by Roger. <laughs> there's some horrific violence in it, absolutely Explicit violence, yes. but it's also the style of storytelling where you're told the end of the story first. In every single case, in almost in every single story, some character pops up right at the beginning and tells you, "Well, you know what's going to happen here. So yes. and so is going to kill so and so, and then you're going to have a huge battle, and then you're <laughs> going to die." You know no. two of my favourite works were clearly inspired by this. <laughs> One being Monty Python's Holy Grail, which is, which I mean, even mentions. Samite, doesn't it? He even mentions yes. this bizarre silky cloth yes. that everyone, everyone, it's obviously
0: water resistant, because yeah. the arms wearing that, yeah, exactly. Massively.
1: Some watery tart with an arm of <laughs> samite holds your sword aloft. That's no basis for a system of government. <laughs> that, that, um, I completely misquoting quoting Monty Python, but that's you know, that's, uh, <laughs> that's the uh, holy grail version, isn't it? But Game of Thrones, this is just, this is the whole thing. The whole of Game of Thrones is just these stories isn't it it's it is yeah it, it, you know there are so many cases where incredibly cruel things happen and and I think I suppose you know the clever twist of Game of Thrones is that you know the good people don't win I mean in this story eventually pretty much they do, they they do. but um you know it feels like this this is this is still being retold isn't it
0: have you got your copy
1: there? I have. have. You got
0: it. Is it your original copy?
1: It's not my original copy. I I feel like I was cheated actually because um the original copy which is at my mum's house in Nurnswich, it sort of looks a bit like a stained glass window. Yes, I've
0: um, got the same one as you. You've got that. That's, yeah, you've got I've the same got, one as yes, me. Yes, so this yes. is
1: this is the uh poor man's version. We the the one that we've got here. The the one that we read was I, I'm actually going to guess it was, you know, from the 50s. It was, and yeah. the front looks like a uh, yeah like a like a stained glass window
0: Before long King Arthur had brought peace and safety to the southern parts of Britain making his capital at Camelot But the other kings who ruled then in and about Britain the kings of Orkney and Lothian of Gwyneth and Powys of Gory and Garloth grew jealous of this unknown boy who was calling himself king of all Britain and sent word that they were coming to visit him with gifts but that their gifts would be given with sharp swords between the head and shoulders. The description is really extraordinary, isn't it, about cleaving, lots of cleaving heads from bodies. Um... You can't
1: move in this story for smiting, (laughs) cleaving, lances shattering into a thousand pieces. I mean, it's essentially pretty much the same story over and over and over again. You know, like a lot of fairy stories, really. Uh, it does feel part Old Testament, part Mort Dartha, and then part fairy story.
0: <laughs> but there's also those great rolling themes underneath, you know, the, the chivalry, the morality, the reward, the prospect of the grail. I realised when I read it that, although I think I know, I'm not sure what a knight actually is.
1: I mean, people get, are getting made knights left, right and centre. There's an awful lot of... You're either a good knight or you're an evil knight. Yeah. Um, there's not much in between, apart from Sir Kay, who is my particular favourite. Um, so Sir Kay is just a sort of... He's a, he's a kind of comic foil to everything. He's a sort <laughs> yes. of... He's a sort of a cowardly knight. He seems to be <laughs> part of the round table, but he... He's basically a bit of a loud mouth, bit of a, you know, yeah, a bit too sort of clever for his own good. Um, <laughs> the only comic sequences in the story revolve around Sir Kay, don't they? You yes. Know, and I, that's, a, that's a generous
0: interpretation, issue. really, because I, I think that <laughs> broadly, uh, enjoyable as the stories are, they, they are light on humour.
1: Very light. Yeah, Yeah, very, very light. It's interesting, isn't it? To think, why does this book... I remember so many of these stories so clearly, and they've stayed with me ever since. There's clearly something underneath all of this that is very powerful. There is something there, but it's definitely not humour. They're very, very simple, these stories. It's just lots of fights. It's one fight after another, done in pretty much the same way. They level their lances, they joust one another, one of them falls off, they get their swords out, they smite each other, the uh, grass becomes stained red with their blood, and then one of them, oftentimes, and then one of them surrenders to the other um, or has his head completely sliced off. Um,
0: and sometimes they're wearing white seemingly only for the purpose of demonstrating how much blood they're losing
1: (laughs) there's another trope as well which is the disguised knight so yes uh one very sounds like I don't like it you know the way I'm talking about is I don't like it I mean I absolutely love it I suppose I'm just kind of
0: well there's there's always a gap here isn't there between the way you read it when you were a little bit and reading it now and inevitably a lot of other stuff has piled on in between so Some of your reaction, presumably, will be exactly the same as it always was. You know, a feeling of that safety and security and your father reading it and everything else to play for. But looking at it, obviously, from an adult perspective, you can't help thinking. Heavens above.
1: Yes. Yeah. 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 Heavens above.
0: Um, Interesting. I I did look up what what you had to do to be a knight. Apparently you had to do sort of 40 days, quite specific 40 days service to your, whoever knighted you, and display Christian chivalry, blah, blah, blah. But they were also, uh, they were mercenaries, really. <laughs> <laughs> so when you
1: say those are the rules for being made a knight, when when yes. when are we when do those when do those rules date from? When's about this time? About, about this time, time? Yes,
0: yes, and okay. and right on into medieval, obviously, because you know the, the knights outlasted, so they were still capering around in, in even the thirteenth and fourteenth centuries, weren't they? But obviously by then, I suspect it was more land based. This this doesn't seem to involve much about fiefdoms and land and getting given stuff. It's just the title and the honor and inevitably the grail. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass***? Would your kids read this, do you think?
1: Well, which funnily enough,
0: pressure?
1: Simon Armitage did a fantastic version of Gawain and the Green Knight, which I read to my son Harrison. I think it might even be a couple of years ago now. He's nine, so he would have been about seven at the time, which he absolutely loved. And I'd ask him at the end of reading every bit, I'd say, so what happened? And he'd have absolutely no idea, absolutely no <laughs> idea what had been going on. Obviously just sort of washing over him, but... It does make you wonder whether are we serving children right, telling them stories that only cater to the vocabulary that we think they'll have, or you know the level of sophistication we decide that they have. I think children are so much smarter than we give them. I think it's true. And also,
0: the interesting thing in in these stories is that you are definitely rooting for the good guy. Whereas children's literature now often involves somebody unpopular or for reasons they're excluded or they have a problem to resolve. They are not quite the anti-hero because obviously you're on their side, but they are not wreathed, they are not crowned, they are not special, they're certainly not wearing armour. So we seem to have left that behind for a while. Unless, unless of course you count superheroes, because a lot of this, um, there are certain passages that sound just Marvel comics to me. That you know they are they set the scene with a hero, who you know is just going to burst through and have magic powers and resolve things in a magic way.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, I mean, the, Sorry, I suppose that's the trend two thoughts did, at once. two thoughts at once, but two great thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I think the trend in storytelling is to is definitely to move towards the you know the idea of the antihero, isn't it?
0: Or well, the underdog, I suppose, more and more the underdog, or,
1: the outsider. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yes. You know, Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they they feel old-fashioned, don't they, in the sense that they are stories of heroism. I found that quite refreshing, actually, when I was reading them. And then at the end, there's the story of, you know, Arthur's, well, when Morgana Le Fay's, what is he, cousin, nephew, Mordred, finally. finally. They're all related. They're all related. They all <laughs> seem to be each other's brothers or cousins. It's yeah. hardly exactly anyone really who's do. not related in the story, is there? Um, and uh, anyway, when he finally brings about Arthur's downfall.
0: <laughs> so the, the values in the book, as broadly loyalty and chivalry and fighting for love and fighting for right, did that, do you think, did it reflect or inspire the way you saw the world?
1: Well, no, I don't think, funnily enough, that's not what came across to me as a child reading the story. I just came, what came across to me was this idea that England was these isles. You know, there had been a time when there were dragons and lions and serpents and um, uh, magicians and people sort of uh, casting spells on one another and, yeah, riding around with magic swords. and, uh, And I think that's what it was the magical side of it, I think, that made the strongest impression on me. It's funny, when you read it as an adult, it feels a little bit like a lesson. You know, it feels a little bit like it's trying rather hard to tell you how to behave. And I mean, let's be honest, it's a very Christian message in the book. It's it's an argument for Christianity, isn't it? In many ways. I I don't think that came across to me at all when I was little. You know, I was just quite into Merlin and uh, the Lady (laughs) in the Lake. And I loved Lancelot. I remember really loving Lancelot, finding Arthur just a bit boring
0: um, he he's one note isn't he basically? Just I mean he's dull. he's solid and, and central but he yeah he doesn't he doesn't change He doesn't much.
1: really do anything in the story. Arthur. I think
0: that's
1: and the to other say, thing the other anything. thing that did make me laugh in the book is it's always <laughs> Pentecost. I mean literally Pentecost <laughs> comes round nothing happens in this book when it's not Pentecost. Through much of this book what you get is Arthur and all the knights turn up on the day of Pentecost to have a feast and wait for something magical to happen. And they can't eat any food until something magical happens. And then something magical will happen. Usually, I mean, the classic example is the Green Knight turns up. You know, this chap turns up on a That's horse. That's one of the best
0: descriptions. It's isn't one it? of the
1: best bits of the whole book. It's wonderful. The Green Knight comes in. They're just all sitting there waiting for something to happen. In comes the <laughs> Green Knight. He says, Okay, who here is brave enough to cut off my head? The deal will be that once they've cut off my head, I get to cut off their head. And of course I've, In a year's
0: time. Yeah, in a, in year's, a year's time. time
1: yeah. At Christmas, not Pentecost, yeah. <laughs> for some reason. No, New Year's Day. It's like New Year's Day. Oh,
0: that's right. Yes, yes.
1: There are a few stories in here which are, I think, really worth the coin. And Gawain in the Green Knight is one of them. It feels very, very complete. And it's also, it's very, unlike a lot of the stories, which, you know, ring to the sound of one particular moral, it's quite a sort of, it's complex, the end of Gawain and the Green Knight. It's a complex ending. It's really sort of undercutting the whole idea of chivalry and talking about uh, human frailty and what it feels like to be afraid. I mean, ultimately, that even the bravest of the knights at the round table is afraid and will make a bargain to try and save his life. And it's sort of...
0: And that. they're young men, aren't and they? They young. are. Yeah. They're young, you know. So I think one of the things that... Uh, Roger as we're calling him now does really well is creating that world where the magical lives alongside which d- did you find that lovely as a child because I, I i, I, love I that. like that idea that it's almost within reach
1: it feels so within reach it, it he deals with that so well and i think as a reader you sort of feel what chance has anybody got against all these people with magic? And how brave is it to go and try and fight a magician? You know, it feels that that does feel unique. The other thing he does so well is describe places. Yeah, I just think, I mean, he he, you can tell he gets a little bored describing the battles. <laughs> Because sometimes, I mean, towards the end of the book, they really do. Yeah, and he got off his horse and he hits him, <laughs> and he got back on again. And anyway, I mean, it, but at the beginning, there's you get every single detail of the battle, and by the end, like, yes. he's slightly punch
0: drunk in trying. And all the to swords find... have different names. Yes. And also the swords become incredibly important for a moment and then someone just chucks it away, frequently into lakes. But you think you've made a lot of effort to get to that sword, I'm not sure. Um, and I think we have to talk about the sure. three swords.
1: So there are three, so I, I've never realised there are a lot of swords in this story.
0: One of which is called Ron. One of which is called Ron. <laughs> Most enjoyable. <laughs>
1: a sword called Ron, isn't there, at the end. And you kind of think, no one's talked about Ron before. And suddenly <laughs> here's this sword, Ron. A couple of the swords are pulled out of stones. One stone is floating on a river. Arthur, of course, as a boy, pulls a sword from the stone. But that's not Excalibur. I think that was it. This is what rereading this really cleared up for me was. It's not Excalibur. In the Excalibur is not the sword in the stone. It's a totally different sword. So that first sword... Shatters like so many yes, of the other swords. that's just
0: the qualification, that's just sword. A
1: qualification sword. That's just the qualification sword. your That's your basic <laughs> entry-level sword. That sword will get you to be king of England, but it will not see you through your reign. What you need is a magic sword from the Lady of the Lake, and that's Excalibur, isn't it? The bit that I think... Uh,
0: sort of redeems Arthur and gives him a different quality is actually tragically for him his death i think that bit he becomes more human to me he's more real he's he's a person just when you're getting fond of him
1: <laughs> it is beautifully written i think that's probably the most beautiful bit of writing in the book is the is this fantastic description of of arthur the the emotions that he goes through when he discovers what's been happening between guinevere and Lancelot and how that feels, so he's angry one minute and then sad the next and then conflicted and then trying to do the right thing and doesn't know and then wages war and then decides not to wage war and then forgives him and then decides to wage war again. Yeah, he becomes a real person, doesn't he, right at the end? Whereas he's sort of lost in the myth, isn't he, and the rest of it. It's the knights that are really...
0: Yes, Lancelot, well, I they're suppose, the personalities. Sort of, yeah. They're the
1: personalities. Arthur doesn't really get a look in, really, does he? I
0: think the girls do get a bit of a raw deal. I oh, think my goodness.
1: The- it's just, there are three characters in this. They are either a nun or a maid, mm-hmm. as they're called. They are yeah. a damsel, in which case, <laughs> which is basically someone, a servant, or yeah. they are a, a lady. And the ladies come of two flavours. <laughs> they are either... Slightly untrustworthy (laughs) or outright evil.
0: And they're also either beautiful or very beautiful or fair. Yes, they are either fair fair
1: or passing fair. Passing Um, fair. Now, to me, something, passing, I don't know how many times he uses the word passing in the book, but it's got to be at least 100 times. Um, I, of course, thought that passing, I would say if someone was passing fair, I think that meant not really that fair. But it's sort of, it clearly means the opposite. It I means, quickly yes. got the hang of that this time. Yeah. I go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> this means...
0: Well, it does imply temporary, doesn't it, really? Surpass- it. I suppose it means yeah. su-
1: as in surpassing, right? Yeah, surpassing, surpassing, yeah.
0: That. But
1: um, they are. They are either the most beautiful woman in, in the world.
0: Well, Gwen, Guinevere is the kind of litmus, isn't she? She's the one most often compared. She was even more lovely than Guinevere. But, you know, Guinevere was obviously so lovely, so very lovely that when the knights gathered, all they had to do for a while was just sit and stare at her. They literally just... There's one scene where it doesn't... That's all they do is one, in, one by one, and they stare at her yeah. and then move on. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. But Guinevere is quite a source, isn't she? I quite like Guinevere. She's, she's, she she's the best... I mean, Morgana Le Fay is probably the best, you know, if you wanted to play one of the parts in this, you'd want to be Morgana Le Fay or Guinevere, wouldn't you? She's, Guinevere's, she's quite feisty, got an eye for a well-turned calf, you know. <laughs> she
0: makes things happen too. And she a lot of the happen. women have absolutely no agency in this yeah, apart Yeah, yeah, she has kissing. lots
1: of agency, but for the most part... And the cliche of the damsel in distress is very much a thing in the stories, isn't it? it you is. know, time it after is. time there seems to be a woman in a slightly strappy silk dress in the middle of a wood. What's she doing there? Um I think you being, might
0: have added strappy there, but probably, probably we'll added
1: strappy. <laughs> no, he doesn't say strappy, yeah, she probably probably puff, puffy Blind. sleeves. Probably puffy <laughs> sleeves, a wimple, in the middle of a clearing <laughs> with several knights sometimes not even knights, sometimes robbers, because, you know, that's the only other kind of people who live in a wood, uh, determined to shame her honour. So that's, that's quite a common...
0: That is that's Almost common. as
1: common as people's shields shattering into a thousand pieces or whatever.
0: Wilfred Owen... Yes. ...said that these stories led young men to their deaths because he felt that the one note of going forward had influenced a generation. Do you you think, I don't know how to frame it really, do we we still have that? Do we have that sort of idea or is it just... You can't escape it,
1: yeah. You can't escape that reading these stories, which is there uh, clearly has been this desire in Britain to build this myth to believe that this is some sort of holy land, to believe that... I think that was one of the other things that really shocked me about reading it again this time, because I sort of tend to imagine that those sort of nationalistic stories are something that are relatively new. Whereas, you know, you read King Arthur and you think, wow, I mean, this goes back an awful long way. (laughs) There's a long-standing belief in this being some sort of holy land.
0: Yes, yes. Mm. And... Roger Larson agree, mm. um wrote this uh it was not long after the end of the second world war was it you know when there was mm-hmm. still still that the, yeah. the the power and the thought and the and the might of that plus he he as we said you know he wrote these specifically for children and um, i've seen one of his sons interviewed he said he absolutely forbade them from reading Enid in but but actually um he has made them accessible despite all that stuff, right, when, when he was writing, where he was writing, because he lived in this most amazing house with the, one of the biggest private libraries ever, and mm. he was an academic. Yeah. But he obviously, he, he's rescued them for little Roger, really, hasn't he? He's given them back to himself as a child. That's Quite a friendly. lovely thought.
1: Yeah, that's a really, really lovely thought. I have to say, I really, I do really admire some of the writing. I think some of the writing is fantastic, and I admire his ambition. Yes. Um, I feel as if he wants to give eight, nine, ten year olds the matter of Britain, because yeah. that's what these stories are, aren't they? He wants to give them the matter of Britain in as pure a form as possible. And yeah. I think that, in that, he's extraordinarily successful. I mean, he's, I'm so grateful for this book. You know, I know we, we it, it's fun to sort of, um, you know, to have a sort of slightly wry glance at it, a fond Fond sideways sideways glance at it. But at its heart, I find some of this is very, very moving. I mean, extraordinarily moving. And like all good myths and fairy tales, you can't, it's greater than the sum of its parts. You can't really point to any part of the story and say, this is what's speaking to me. It's something that's underlying all of it. There's an imagery here that's much more powerful than any of the storytelling
0: maybe maybe, maybe you'd like to have a go at them then, maybe you'd like to rewrite the stories I'd How love to different...
1: rewrite the stories, yeah I'd love to rewrite the stories I I, I think um, funnily enough, I've been writing a story at the moment, I mean on the surface it doesn't have any connection with this at all it's about a boy who swaps bodies with a dog but, um, but actually all the imagery in it is from King Arthur, you know there's a lake, there's a, a fountain that looks like the grail, there's a connection to this magical 5th and 6th century Britain. You know, there's a, it sort of does bubble up. This bubbles up, I think, in other stories. And as I say, I think you see it bubbling up very obviously in Monty Python and the Holy Grail, but in modern stories as well, you know, in contemporary things like Game of Thrones.
0: How would you sum up your relationship with the book now, do you think?
1: Uh, well, I, I I felt extremely inspired by it reading it again. I just wish I could describe woods and valleys and castles with the, oh, with the deftness of Roger Lancelin Green. I mean, I, I, th- that's the funnily enough. The thing I really really took away from it was, I must try and learn to write description of plays like this. It's it's just magical. I didn't learn a thing about chivalry, or certainly didn't learn anything about hand to hand combat. <laughs> But I did think, or women, really not nothing. I know less about women now than I knew, I knew, I knew before reading the book. But what I did learn was that there can be real poetry in your setting of a scene and in your description of place.
0: Oh, and thank you. So lovely to meet you. Thanks, Janet. It's lovely to meet you. Joyful. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis. My guest was Ben Miller. The producer is Caroline Raphael. Recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite. All the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at twice upon a Pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books. And if you like the show, do recommend to a friend or leave us a review. The executive producer is Claire Broughton and Twice Upon a Time is a hat trick podcast.